Lord our God, our Saviour, our King, we thank you and praise you that you are our Redeemer, our Saviour. Without you we have no hope. Without you we have nothing to live for. Because we know that life goes for eternity. And Lord, your word is enduring for eternity. We thank you that we get to come and hear it now, read it and preached. We pray that you'll prepare our hearts, open our hearts to understand and to receive your word and allow it to change us to become more like our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Father, teach us, lead us and guide us through your word this morning. Amen. Reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14 to chapter 5, verse 13. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how the, these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not, do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. 
Um, well, we have, what a passage we have to think about today. It's pretty hard hitting, isn't it? If you're visiting with us, uh, it'll give you something of the flavour for us as a church. Uh, that is, we read through books of the Bible together and we kind of do it sequentially. We don't sort of miss out some of the bits that we might otherwise like to skip. Uh, and it helps us to know that God's setting the agenda for us, not ourselves, because uh, we're hearing it from his word. And uh, this is his good word to us today. Uh, so we're going to think about this passage together, friends, uh, a, really, um, a really deep and important passage. Uh, but uh, you, before we get into that, though, I just want to make a very quick announcement, which is uh, we've set up a little bookstall out the back. Uh, there's a number of books around the themes that we're looking at over the rest of this term that are going to come up in 1 Corinthians 5 through to 7, all about relationships, um, sex, marriage and singleness uh, and all of that. There's, there's a number of really good books out there. Uh, and uh, you can have a, have a look at those. If you want to take one, if you want one, uh, there is an envelope inside, and that has the price in there. Now, don't let the price, please don't let the price be prohibitive. We want these books read so that we can grow in maturity as a church. So if, if that's an issue for you, um, please do um, um, just uh, pay whatever you're able to pay for that. Uh, and if, that, um, if that's nothing, that's fine as well. So pay what you're able to pay, but the, uh, and that's an envelope you can put into the everything box. All right, there's those books out there. Uh, but you've probably heard of, um, um, maybe numbers of us lived through the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Uh, it was a time of huge upheaval. All the kind of moral norms and taboos of society were upended. Uh, it was this revolution, and it totally changed the way in which we, how we live, right? And we're st it's, we're still, it's still being played out today. We're still experiencing that sexual revolution uh, in its massive impact today. But what's really interesting, and what I, what I want to kind of turn us to, is that as big as the, the revolution of the 60s was, there was another sexual revolution that utterly changed society and that has shaped the lives of countless people for over thousands of years and is still shaping us today. Not the revolution of the 60s, but the 30s. And by that I mean not the 1930s, I mean the actual 30s, uh, the 30s AD. Jesus brought about a revolution. He brought about a revolution in how people saw themselves and their relationships with each other. It was utterly unique and it still shapes our assumptions today, uh, even though as a society we might have forgotten it. Uh, it still shapes us in deep and profound ways, this revolution that Jesus kicked off. The good news of Jesus wasn't just about saving people in some future. It was about saving them into a new kingdom, a kingdom that shaped every part of their lives, including their sex lives. And this transformation was huge. Um, so over the rest of this term, we're going to be looking at these chapters in 1 Corinthians. And, and friends, they give us some of the clearest insights into this relationships revolution that Jesus sparked off. Um, they show what it looked like on the ground in this young church full of people who had grown up in the Roman Empire uh, with all of its assumptions about relationships and sex. But these people who had come to Christ and were now learning to live as citizens of his kingdom. It's a great letter, I think, because it, uh, you read through Corinthians and you realise these guys are full of dysfunction and sin. Uh, they're, they're all kinds of different levels. Uh, and that's, that in itself shows us, I think, something really profound. You don't need to fix yourself up before you come to Jesus. Uh, you come as you are, in all of your mess, all of your sin. 
Uh, But coming to Jesus means being given a new life. And that takes time and instruction and a church community, independence on God's spirit to help you to learn and grow into that new life. So that's why Paul's writing this letter to this church in Corinth. And that's why we need to pray that by his spirit, God will open our hearts and our wills to its teaching too. Uh, but this, this revolution that Jesus kicked off uh, and that it, it we're seeing played out in this letter to the Corinthians, it didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, it was actually a long-prepared-for revolution in the story of Israel. Uh, God had saved his people from slavery in Egypt. Uh, many of us know the story. Uh, the people of Israel were enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt, who refuses to let them go. God sends plagues as warnings and punishments to Pharaoh until the last plague of the firstborn. If you know it, the angel of the Lord uh, went through the nation, taking the lives of every firstborn son, except those who had sacrificed a lamb, as God had told them, and smeared its blood over their doors. God would pass over that household because uh, it was covered by the blood of the lamb. And so the people of Israel escape Egypt, and they left so quickly that they didn't have time to put yeast in their bread. They needed to take something with them. They didn't have time to kind of make proper bread. Uh, So they took unleavened bread, flat bread. Uh, So God takes them on this long road to their new home, to the land that he had promised them. But on the way, he gives them his law, his instruction about how they would live. Now that they've been rescued by his grace... God gives them his, his instruction, and, and, and they were to be a people who were set apart. Uh, that's what the word holy means. Now, you, you know that word, holy? Uh, it conjures up all kinds of things, but basically it means to be set apart for a special purpose. To be set apart for a special purpose. God had a special purpose for this people, for Israel, to bring his blessing to the world through them. They were his holy people. And every year they would remember this great rescue, this new holiness that they had been called to by God's grace in what's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Maybe you heard that phrase. uh, They'd go through the whole house and they'd throw out all the yeast, all all the leaven, uh, and they'd uh, only eat unleavened bread, and they'd celebrate in the Passover, they'd celebrate that lamb that was slain so that they could live. So they're doing this year after year, right? Looking back to the exodus out of Egypt. But it was also something that looked forward to the greater exodus that was to come. And in the fullness of time, the fulfillment of God's great salvation story came in Jesus, the true Passover lamb who frees us from slavery to sin and death. And this kingdom is now not just for one people, but for all people. People from every tribe and tongue and nation. Everyone can enter into it through faith in Jesus. That's the story that this ragtag group of sinners in Corinth had been swept up into. They'd been swept up into this amazing story. The Apostle Paul had come to them and shared this good news about Jesus Uh, Numbers of people in the town, in the city, had heard this and responded. They'd put their trust in Jesus, and this new church was born. And you get the sense at the end of chapter 4 that we had read out to us, you get the sense that Paul really has a special place in his heart for these guys. He's, 
He's heard these concerning reports about them. That's why he's writing the letter. But you can feel his anguish, right? In 4 verse 14, he says, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. He knows that there's really concerning things happening in the church, and he's warning them as his dear children. Some of the things Paul's heard about this church concern him so much that he knows drastic action is needed. He wants to come to them in person, uh, but you can tell by the end of chapter 4, he's urging them to address these problems in their community. He'd much rather come to them in a spirit of love and gentleness um, than with a rod of discipline. So anyway, what is it that's so concerning in in this church community that Paul's writing to? We've already seen one major issue. We looked at that last year, uh, the first few chapters of the, the letter. He deals with this issue of factionalism and divisions in the church. They're kind of dividing over different leaders in the church, and there was all this unhealthy stuff going on. But there's another major problem. 5 verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Uh, that phrase sexual immorality it's one word in the the greek that it was written in uh, the words on your leaflet there is called porneia and uh, helpful to know that because that's where our word pornography comes from uh, it's a word that paul uses to talk about any form of sexual activity outside of god's good design for sex in the lifelong union of one man and one woman in marriage so it includes a whole lot of things from pornography to sex outside of marriage One of the striking things about the Bible's view of sex is that it's overflowingly positive about it. You just need to read the Song of Songs to know that. It's overflowingly positive. Uh, It is God's good gift designed by him to be enjoyed in the stability and self-giving relationship of marriage. Which means for Christians that any kind of sex outside of marriage is off limits for us. Not because we're against joy, but because we're for it. Because we honour God's good design and we trust that his word is good. But what's in view here, as Paul's writing this letter, is a particular kind of porneia. Uh, 5 verse 1, um, there is, uh, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. So there's this guy in the church Uh, He's someone who claims to be a Christian, someone saved by Jesus' blood, uh, redeemed into Jesus' kingdom. Uh, What's going on here? Uh, There's this guy who's engaging in a sexual relationship with his father's wife. Most likely it's his stepmother. Um, Whatever the details, we're not quite sure, but we know that this is shocking. Uh, This kind of relationship is explicitly forbidden in the Old Testament. And not only that, you see what Paul says, even the people of Corinth wouldn't have accepted it. Now, it's important to see what's going on here. Uh, This isn't a one-off mistake that this guy is sorrowful for and repents of. Uh, This chapter is not talking about being perfect without any sin. So if I said, okay, anyone who sins this week, you're not allowed to come to church next week, guess who'd be here? No one. And I'd have to kick myself out too. Uh, The issue isn't that this guy's a sinner. The issue is that there's no recognition from him that what he's doing is wrong. There's no repentance. It's a, and it's an ongoing public thing. Everyone knows about it. And that leads to the second problem Paul's heard about. 
Not just that this is happening, but in verse 2, and you are proud. Um, pride's been a major issue in this church. You would have known that. You'd know that if, you, if you've read through the first part of it with us. These guys are puffed up, once, one against the other. They're, they're more concerned with their status than with their sin. And all of this is hugely concerning for Paul. He's concerned for the man involved. Uh, down in verse 5, you see Paul wants this man to be saved on the day of the Lord when Jesus returns as judge. Uh, this kind of ongoing, unrepentant sin shows that this guy's in grave danger. Whatever he says about being a Christian, having faith in Jesus as his saviour and king, this hard heart that he has, this refusal to address his sin, it shows something different to what he's saying with his mouth. And Paul wants this man to be saved on that day. So he's concerned for this guy, but he's also, do you notice as you read through, he's also concerned for the church itself. Uh, he uses this image they would have been very familiar with. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. So you get the image right, um, that you're baking bread, uh, and you put a little bit of yeast in, a little bit of leaven, um, and it, goes, it spreads through the whole batch. Uh, see, what's, see what is Paul's saying here? Sin is like that yeast in a batch of dough, just a little of it, and it'll spread through the whole thing. So imagine someone who's just come to Jesus put their faith in him, found life in him, found acceptance and forgiveness and peace with God through Christ. And he's joined this church in Corinth. And, and, and after a couple of weeks, he looks over and, and sees this guy and he knows what's happening with, in his, with this guy's life. So this new Christian thinks, well, obviously that's fine for Christians to do. Uh, no, one's making, no one's saying anything about it. See how that, that's, the, the yeast is spreading. Or maybe imagine someone who's come to Christ from a totally pagan background and has struggled with uh, the sin of their past and still struggles when their old ways catch up with them. But this person confesses their sin, turns from it, turns to Christ, perseveres in pursuing holiness. Imagine how discouraging it would be for that person to have this going on in the church. So what's Paul's response here? What does he urge this church to do? I think this is really important for us. The first thing you see in verse 2, uh, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? The first thing they should have done in the face of this is to mourn. I think this is so important. What Paul goes on to tell them to do isn't, you know, it's not some kind of gleeful power trip, um, it's the outworking of a deep grief. Sin should grieve us. And this kind of public, unrepentant sin in a church community should cause us to go into mourning. Should have led them into grief, but it should have led to action as well. They, should have, they, they need to mourn together and act together. Verse 2, shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Paul goes on to describe what this looks like. So they, they didn't do it. Now he's saying they need to take action together. But do, do you notice this action is done 
who, where the authority comes from for this? It comes from Jesus himself. Uh, Jesus himself, who says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Uh, Jesus, who pays for our sin, brings us into his kingdom, um, but also brings us in to transform us and make us new. Verse 3, For my part, Paul says, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So Paul's the, an apostle of Jesus, chosen by him, and with Jesus' own authority, he's, he's passed judgment on this man. So he says in verse 4, When you're assembled, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. It's pretty intense, right? It's pretty full-on language. Uh, hand him over to Satan. What's going on there? I think it's actually just another way of saying what he's already said, to put this man out of their fellowship. In, in the kind of way Paul's thinking here, that the church, the community of the church, is Jesus' kingdom, his realm. Um, this side of the new creation, to be outside of the church, is not to be in Jesus' realm, but actually in Satan's. And so Paul says, for the good of this man... Uh, to kind of bring him to his senses. And for the good of the church, this drastic action needs to be taken. And notice, as, as we sort of mentioned earlier, it's a whole church thing. It's not just one kind of one leader or a small group trying to control everyone. It is the sober, tearful action of the whole church. They're to put this man out of their fellowship. Now, verse 9, Paul, down in verse 9, Paul clears up a misunderstanding. So he's written to them before along these lines, but they've misunderstood him. Uh, they've adopted an attitude that's kind of harsh and judgmental towards those outside, but soft uh, towards those inside. That's the kind of attitude they've adopted. And friends, that is a big problem in churches, can I say? Uh, it's, it's allowed all kinds of wickedness and sin to be swept under the carpet in church communities and a kind of hard-nosed judgmentalism towards out, those outside. But you notice Paul reverses things? He says, you've got it all wrong. It's, it's not your job to judge those outside the church. Leave that to God. Attend to the sin in your own midst. Which means not just this man, but verse 11, anyone who claims to be, who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. Again, you see that, that list, it's not talking about a sin that's been repented of and forgiven through the cross. And it's not talking about a perfect church full of self-righteous people. Okay, that's not what's going on here at all. It's talking about ongoing, public, unrepentant sin. And Paul says, do not even eat with such people. I don't think he's got in mind a kind of hard-edged shunning, you know, that kind of idea. Uh, you cross the street if you see the person um, coming towards you. That's, that's not, you know, I don't think that's in view at all. It's this sober, tearful decision not to participate with this man in activities that would communicate that he's part of Christ's people. 
Say that again. I, th I think that's what's going on. It's, it's this decision not to participate in activities that would communicate that this guy is a part of Christ's people. Um, the activities that express Christian unity, like um, eating the Lord's Supper, or maybe in our context, uh, belonging in a home group or something like that. And it's important to see that 1 Corinthians 5 shows us what, what, what we're seeing here in 1 Corinthians 5. It's really important to see that this is the last resort, not the first resort. Um, Jesus talks in, in Matthew chapter 18. That's another really important place, Matthew chapter 18. He talks about this. He, he sh this is, if this is the last resort, Jesus shows us the first steps that we should take in this kind of situation. He says, if your brother or sister sins... Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Uh, if they listen to you, great, you've won them over. <laughs> so there's that, that's the first step. If they don't listen to you, then take one or two others with you. And, and then if that doesn't work, to, uh, bring it to the whole church. It, it's describing this slow, relationally driven process that's over months, not days, of working through an issue, seeking peace, urging repentance, and only taking that next step once you've sort of exhausted all the other options. So what we're seeing here is not common. Uh, it's, it's a rare thing. Um, the end of a long road with someone. But there are times, Paul wants the church to know, there are times when for the good of that person and for the good of the church, this kind of thing is necessary. Okay, how are we going? <laughs> As I said, it's an interesting, it's a pretty full-on passage that we're reading through today. But there's one more thing Paul instructs this church to do here, right in the middle of the chapter that we're going to focus on. And I'm so glad it's here, this, this little paragraph, because it takes us right back to the heart of things, back to the gospel. What's at the heart of all this? Uh, verse 7, he says, Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So, friends, this is a sobering chapter, but underlying it is a wonderful reality. A wonderful reality. Just like the people of Israel before Jesus came were to get rid of their old yeast once a year at Passover, this new Israel of God, this church of Jew and Gentile united in Christ, who is our true Passover lamb, we're to take sin seriously. We're to humbly, soberly pursue holiness together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And did you notice it's not just sexual sin, that's the particular issue that's going on in Corinth. It's much broader than that. Uh, has the sin of greed taken hold in your life? Do you find yourself cheating people out of what they deserve? In small ways, maybe. Is it your habit to drink in order to get drunk? Are there idols of your heart that mean you are pursuing created things looking to them for your meaning and purpose, rather than your loving creator. Take these things seriously. Understand that they spread like yeast. 
And bring your church family in on this, on on your journey. Don't be like this guy, unrepentant in your heart, continuing in pride towards God. And us as a church family, let's take this to heart together. See what the dynamic is, is going on here. By God's grace, we pursue this kind of revolutionary holiness. We pursue it together. Not alone. All of us. All of us on our own, in our own steam, are lost sinners. <laughs> so there's no room for judgmentalism, self-righteousness. So ask a brother or a sister for help to get that yeast out of your life before it spreads. And if someone in your church family comes to you and kind of awkwardly fumbling over their words says, I noticed the way you're talking to your spouse last week and I just wanted to I, I don't I'm not quite sure what to say but I'm really concerned about that or whatever it is if someone comes to you like that thank God for them and for that that's them loving you in this kind of a way friends this is why committed membership of a local church family is so vital in the Christian life Uh, You won't be able to do this for someone or to receive it from someone if church for you is just an occasional event you attend or if it's something you kind of dip in and out of uh, in different places at different times. Uh, I just mentioned that because it's, it's actually, it's not uncommon for me to hear Christians say something along the lines of, they don't belong to any one church because they belong to the universal church. But that's taking one truth and denying another. There is a a universal truth. Praise God. We are seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. On the last day, we will be gathered around the throne, people from every tribe and nation and tongue, all of the saints gathered together. But until that day, God's plan for his people is to express that universal reality in a very particular group of people in one local church family. Friends, unless you give yourself to committed, self-giving relationship to this gathering of your brothers and sisters or another local faith, a faithful local church, you will not be able to follow the Lord's word here. You just won't. You won't be in a position to lovingly speak with a brother and sister about their sin. And no one will know you well enough to do that for you, <laughs> to hold you accountable for sin in your own life. So, together, we clear out this old yeast. But not just that. What I want to finish is by pointing us to this wonderful good news. Um, in the Old Testament, clearing out of the old yeast went hand in hand with ce- the celebration of God's great salvation in the Passover. So Paul says, take sin seriously in your own life and together as a church family... Uh, But don't do it in your own strength. Don't do it proudly. Don't do it self-righteously. Don't do it thinking you're earning brownie points with God. Do it because Christ, your Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for you to wash you clean and to save you from judgment, to bring you into a whole new life with God. So mourn, take action where it's needed, 
and and at the same time keep the festival or another translation uh, you might have you might see it, it says celebrate the festival and not just one week a year but every week every day uh, this is going to come up again and again as in the next few chapters as we look through 1 Corinthians. Paul anchors what they should be doing now in who they already are through the gospel, by God's grace. You notice that as we read through, they are already unleavened. They are unleavened. Christ has died and risen again and given them forgiveness and new life as a free gift. So celebrate the festival. Day by day, remember and rejoice in who you are in Christ. Continue in humility and repentance to bring your sin before him and confess it and turn from it. There is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you, brothers and sisters. And together, uh, in thankful response to all that Christ has done for us, let's pursue this revolutionary holiness that he calls us into. Let me pray for us as we finish. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We are unleavened. You have cleared us out. You've made us clean through the death of Jesus and all that that means. Oh God, our Father, please help us to take our sin seriously, both individually and as a church. Please prick our conscience where it needs to be so that we might repent and that we might turn to you and in the company of our church family, we might walk in newness of life. And we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Duncan. This next song we're going to sing, Come Thou Founts of Every Blessing. One of the verses says, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let's stand and sing together. And parents, you may go and pick up your children from Kids Church during this song. Post-preaching brain. Let's sing this great song together. Mm -hmm. 